You would turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the words to the Scripture will be printed in your sermon guide. We won't read the whole chapter, but we'll read verses 1 to 8, 16 to 21, and then 26 to 31. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Benai, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Benai, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Benai, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who you brought up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in, time, in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. 
Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. How do people change? How does a person who is is living one way actually change and begin to live another way? There's a lot of ways that we try to get people to change. I was struck by a recent article I read of Tyreek Hill. He's a wide receiver for the Kansas City Chiefs, star wide receiver, who recently got banned from the Chiefs practice facilities while they're investigating his possible abuse, physical abuse of his three-year-old son. The police had showed up at his house several times. They saw the evidence of injuries, but they didn't know where it had come from. And then the audio file leaked of the conversation he and his fiance had in the Dubai International Airport. And it was an alarming audio file of a conversation that revealed a lot, including his fiance saying, our son tells us and tells you that you hit him. But one of the most, in the audio file, as you, you listen to it or read the transcript, one of the most striking and quite frankly terrifying parts of it is when she said, the fiance said to Tyreek Hill, he is terrified of you. You know, terror is a way to change someone. You can get somebody to change through terror, through fear. You can get someone to change through shame and through guilt. There are a number of different ways that you can motivate someone who is living one way to change and begin living another way. The question is, what produces real change? What is, biblically speaking, where does real change come from? What leads you to repentance? The beginning three verses of chapter nine in Nehemiah are a striking picture of confession and repentance from God's people. This, is, this happens one day after the Feast of Booths, which we looked at last week in Nehemiah 8. And remember, the Feast of Booths was a week-long celebration. It was a joyous occasion where God's people celebrated his salvation. And now, one day later, God's people are in sackcloth and ashes. They are confessing their sin. They're hearing from God's word and they're worshiping. And then in verse five, we see the Levites, the priests of Israel, launch into this extended, long and beautiful prayer that answers the question of what causes repentance and what causes confession. What caused God's people to move into a time of confession and repentance? And this prayer answers it. What leads you to repentance? First, God's name. The prayer starts with God's name. Look at verse five. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name. 
which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Blessed be your glorious name. Why is God's name singled out for blessing? Well, names in our times don't compare with the significance of names in biblical times or in the ancient Near East. Names in biblical times, there were two primary characteristics of them. Number one, a name communicated the character of the person. A name represented the very essence of that person, the identity of that person. That's number one. Second, the person who was naming had authority over the one who was being named. The person who was doing the naming had authority over the one who was being named. We see this in a couple examples. Genesis 32, where Jacob is wrestling with God. And God changes Jacob's name to Israel because he had authority over Jacob. And the name change represented the change in character, the change in heart of Jacob. In Exodus 3, when God meets Moses in the burning bush and tells Moses, go rescue my people from Egypt. What's Moses say to God? Well, hey, when I get there and they ask what your name is, what should I say to them? God says, I am who I am. God names himself. God has to name himself because God reveals himself. The only way that we can understand who God is is if he reveals himself to us. He names himself because God is the ultimate authority and we're dependent on that. Blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You know what that means? That our human words, however exalted they may be, can never perfectly describe God because he is infinitely greater than we are. He says through Isaiah, his prophet in chapter 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And this feeds right into verse six in Nehemiah chapter nine. You are the Lord, you alone. You made heaven the heaven of heavens and the host of heaven worships you. Now you say, what does this have to do with repentance? Everything, everything. If God names himself, and is the only one who has authority to name himself and reveal himself, then God is the one who has authority to name what belongs in his world and what doesn't belong in his world. That God alone has the authority to name sin, and that we don't. We don't have the authority to name sin or dictate how God responds to the, the sin that we have named. And yet we do that. In many ways, we functionally assume the authority to name sin. Let me give you some common phrases to describe the way we do. Here's one. If it feels right, how can it be wrong? If it feels right, how can it be wrong? That's, that's, that is elevating emotions to the place of authority. 
right? Emotions have become the authority to name sin. Or close cousin, if it works, how can it be wrong? Right, if it works, how can it be wrong? Now that's elevating intellect and will to the position of naming sin, naming what belongs, what's right, what's wrong. Once you've done that, you have given yourself the authority to name sin. And you've given everyone else the authority to name sin based on their emotions or their intellect or their will. And so just to be, this is blunt, but Hitler exterminating the Jews just becomes a, he, he was doing what he thought was right. Or, or the ones that flew the planes into the World Trade Centers in New York City in 2001, they were doing what they thought was right. There's no authority to name or to come down and say that's right or wrong. That's why God's name, his glorious name, his right to name himself and his, his right to name what belongs and what doesn't belong in his wor world is reserved solely for him. Let me give you another common phrase. Everyone else is doing it. Or I may not be perfect, but I'm not as bad as that person. Right, when we begin to compare. And, and what we've done there is said that that person's behavior is now the one that's authoritative in naming sin and not God's naming of sin. When you functionally assume the authority to name sin, you can only experience worldly sorrow. And this is where I'm tying it back into repentance. Worldly sorrow is very different than godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow does not produce repentance. Godly sorrow does. Worldly sorrow is simply sorrow over not measuring up to your own standards, your own naming of sin, or to the standards of someone else. That will only produce worldly sorrow. It will not produce repentance. It will not produce change. David, King David, when he was confronted and convicted of adultery and murder, he said this in Psalm 51. Against you, God, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Repentance begins with acknowledging that God and God alone names sin. He names himself, he reveals himself, and he names what belongs in his world and what doesn't. That's where repentance begins. That's the starting point. Now that leads to the second point. What leads you to repentance? God's name. Second, your sin. There is a full description, full orb description of sin in this chapter. Verses nine to 15, we didn't read it, but that's where God describes, uh, the Lord describes taking Israel out of Egypt through the desert, providing graciously for them. And then we pick up in verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed against them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Four descriptions of sin here. Four really clear descriptions of sin in these two verses. First, acted presumptuously. What does that mean? That means living without boundaries. Another way that that's translated is arrogantly. It means I'm above the rules. I don't need the rules. I make up my own rules. That's what it means to act presumptuously. 
Second, stiffened their neck. What's that mean? That means stubborn. Okay, stiff neck. That's, a, uh, that's an idiom that we use for a farm animal that stiffens their neck and doesn't put the yoke on because they don't want guidance, right? It, it's referring to sin as not willing to be led, not submitting, not following, wanting no restraint, no guidance, no kind of yoke, right? Third description, they did not obey. The word here means to hear. It means they didn't hear. They didn't want to hear. And they literally plugged their ears. They didn't want to hear from God. And then the fourth description, were not mindful of wonders that you performed among them. They did not remember or chose not to acknowledge all that God had done for them. They were ungrateful. They appreciated nothing. And all this gets summed up in verse 26. And here's the key before I read verse 26. All those descriptions of sin arrive at the same conclusion. Four descriptions of sin, kind of like turning a diamond, seeing different facets of it, they all arrive at the same conclusion, which is verse 26. They were disobedient, and here it is, rebelled against you. You see, sin is not just breaking a set of rules. Sin is breaking fellowship with God. Sin is relational. Sin is treason. Sin is rebellion. Sin is, as God in the other parts of the Old Testament describes Israel's sin, calls it adultery. It is intensely relational. If I can just say this, I'm going to be blunt. But sin is sticking the middle finger up to God. I'm just going to be blunt. It is, a, it is relational. It's not an objective or a, a, a rule out here that I break. It is breaking the heart of God. It's breaking fellowship with God. It is intensely relational. When God describes it as adultery, chapter nine is a great description of it. God faithfully and generously provides for his people and they turn and run after other lovers. That's what sin is. In uh, his book on FBI agent Robert Hansen, who was convicted of uh, serving as a spy to Russia for many years and betraying America, David Wise, in his book, he writes of the conversation he had with uh, David Charney, who was the psychiatrist that evaluated Robert Hansen after he was convicted. 22 years of spying. Over 22 years, received $1.4 million from Russia to give away secrets. That's a long time. That's a lot of money. And so this psychiatrist sat down with Robert Hansen to figure out, why did he do it? You think, well, maybe there was, you know, ideological beliefs. No, it was over money. And specifically around the financial pressure of, and this is the way that David Wise said it, to assure his wife that he was not a failure. Listen to what he said in his book. Bonnie, who was Robert Hansen's wife, was the one person who brought life into his life. She was the last person he would want to think he was a failure. He reached to prove to her he was a good provider and a good husband so that when she would express wishes for various things, he would always buy them for her. He felt it was necessary to sustain his image in her eyes as successful. And then listen to what he says. Why did Robert Hansen get into a corner financially? 
because he had to keep up his reputation with his wife. And then here it is, because that was the one person in the world whose opinion mattered. He betrayed one relationship to secure another relationship. And that's what sin is. Sin is a betraying of your relationship to God to secure a relationship with someone or something else that you believe is gonna satisfy your soul and make you happy. That's what sin is. It's betrayal at the highest degree. And you say, this is enough. It's getting a little bit depressing in here. Why are we talking so harshly about sin as betrayal and treason and rebellion? When are we gonna get to grace? Let me say it this way. If you are unwilling to taste the horrific bitterness of sin, the treason, the rebellion, the adultery of it, then you will not taste the immense sweetness of grace. If you're unwilling to embrace the horror of sin, then you will, you will taste grace like watered-down powdered lemonade. I, listen, I grew up in a youth group. Every Sunday night, we would eat dinner, and the leaders every Sunday night would make a five-gallon igloo cooler of country-time powdered lemonade. And 90% of the time, 95% of the time, it was watered down. It was awful. They didn't add enough powder. Extremely disappointing. I'm tasting it now. That's the kind of grace you're going to drink if you will not embrace the horrific nature of the adultery and the rebellion of sin. But if you will embrace what sin is and embrace it as betrayal and adultery of your fellowship, your relationship to God, then you are set up to taste the sweet, sweet flavor of grace in an amazing way. And that leads us to the last point. What leads you to repentance? First, God's name, that he alone names sin. We don't name sin. He names it. He tells us what belongs and what doesn't belong because he knows. He designed it. He designed this world. He designed our lives. He knows how we should thrive. And so repentance starts with saying, God, I'm gonna acknowledge that you name sin. I'm not gonna reduce it. I'm not gonna compare. You name sin. Second, right, what leads you to repentance is embracing what sin is. It's relational. It is relational betrayal and adultery towards God. That leads us to the last Point, and that is God's mercy. I don't know any other way to say it than when you read Nehemiah chapter nine, the point that comes up over and over that, that somewhat leaves you scratching your head is the overwhelming nature of God's mercy. Over and over, there's this pattern. Israel sins, God shows mercy. Israel sins, God shows mercy. Again and again and again. It is relentless his mercy in this chapter. How did God respond to Israel's rebellion in the wilderness after he had rescued them out of Egypt and provided for them in the desert? Look at verse 17. But you are a God ready to forgive, 
gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Then verse 19, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. How did God respond to their ungratefulness when they finally got to the promised land? A land flowing with milk and honey of abundant provision. Now he had given them everything. How did, and they sinned, how did God respond to their, their lack of gratitude? Verse 27, and in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors. That was the period of the judges who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Then verse 28, but after they had rest, they did evil again before you. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Then verse 31, after they fell into sin again and betrayed yet again. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them for you are a gracious and merciful God. What do you do when someone commits the same sin to you over and over again for the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth time? What do you do? Your mercy starts to lose a little steam, doesn't it? Pretty quickly. In fact, probably for most of us, it's when they commit it a second time. Forget 10, 11, 12. Your mercy loses steam. God's mercy never loses steam. It is endless. You say, why? You know, the Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. <laughs> where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You say, why? How can God continue to have endless, endless mercy towards his people that fail over and over and over again? because his mercy is born out of a promise. And God never reneges on a promise he makes. And his promise is spelled out in verse eight when he describes the covenant, the promise he made with Abraham. Look at verse eight. You found his heart faithful before you, speaking of Abraham, and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land. There's the promise. God said to Abraham, I'm going to grow a family and I'm going to take you to the land. You will get to the land. Now you think of all that happened between that, slavery in Egypt, rescue, wilderness, and finally getting to the promised land. All the rebellion, all the sin, over and over again, it is clear that God made a promise and he was going to get his people there. That's the promise. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. Now, what's the promise that God made with Abraham? Well, to get to the land. How did he enact that? Or how did he enact that covenant he made with Abraham? It was very similar to the way that covenants were made in that day in the ancient Near East. And that is, if you had two people that were entering into an agreement or a covenant, they would sacrifice an animal, they would cut that animal in half, and both people would walk between the animal halves saying this, if I fail to uphold my end of the covenant, let this happen to me. Let me be cut in half. Let me die. 
Well, when God makes his covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham sacrifices an animal. The animal's cut in half. But only God walks between the animal pieces. Abraham sits off to the side and watches. And God was making his message and his announcement crystal clear. And it was this. Abraham, if I fail to uphold my end of the covenant, let this happen to me. But Abraham, if you and your offspring actually win, you and your offspring fail, let this happen to me. And that's exactly what happened. Israel failed over and over and over again. You and I fail over and over and over again. But God had made a promise that when we fail on our end, that God the Son would get cut in half. That God the Son, Jesus Christ, would die. You see, the reason that God's mercy is endless is because his mercy does not respond to your work. His mercy does not respond to your performance or your behavior. His mercy responds to the work of his son, Jesus Christ. That's why his mercy is endless. And when you attach yourself to Jesus, that's what it means to put your faith in Christ. When you attach yourself to Jesus, then that endless mercy that is a response to Jesus the Son is now a response to your life because you're in Christ and he has taken your sin away from you. Now here's the sobering fact. If you have not attached yourself to Jesus, then God's mercy is not endless to you. If you haven't attached yourself to Jesus, then God's judgment is upon you. But by faith, if you've attached to Jesus, mercy is endless for you. And then you say, well, great, then I can just keep going on sinning. No, you don't get it then. If God has put his own son on the cross to die for you, and you get that at a heart level, then that motivates repentance. That motivates, oh God, I sinned again. My heart's broken. I don't want to sin. Turn my heart back to you. You see, God's grace and God's mercy turns a love relationship with sin to a love relationship with your maker, with God. Say, what does this have to do with repentance? I've already started to get into it. Romans 2.4, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness, his grace, his mercy, his kindness is meant to move you towards repentance, turning from sin, turning to him. And yet there's a number of different ways we can motivate repentance. I started with it. I'll speak into it now. You, you can motivate repentance. No, 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 I'm not gonna say repentance. Strike that. You can motivate behavioral change through fear. You can threaten someone. You can scare them into changing their behavior. Temporary behavioral change. Uh, you can shame someone into behavioral change. 
temporary behavioral change. But behavioral change and repentance are two different things. They're not the same, although repentance includes behavioral change. They're very different. God's grace and mercy is what turns you from your love relationship with sin to a love relationship with Christ. Sin is relational, therefore repentance is relational. I love the Batman movies. What happens every time the Joker commits a crime? He leaves his calling card, doesn't he? He leaves his calling card. He leaves his mark everywhere he goes. Mercy is God's calling card. Mercy is God's calling card. Everywhere he goes, he leaves his mark of mercy, which is expressed through the life, through the death, through the resurrection of his son, Jesus. What leads you to repentance? God's name, your understanding of sin as relational and betrayal, and that all culminates to God's mercy. God's mercy, his kindness, is what is meant to lead you to repentance. Let's pray. Father, we read chapter nine of Nehemiah, and we're not foreign to this pattern. We see it in our own lives. The sin that we commit over and over and over, repeated sin, failures over and over and over. And yet, as we read in this chapter, your response is mercy. Oh, Father, would you convince us, make it so incredibly clear in our hearts that your mercy is not a response to our work. It's a response to the work of your son, Jesus. And it is a response to our faith when we attach ourselves to your son. Father, would you make us a repentant people, not because we're scared into it or terrified into it or shamed into it, but that we would be a people who repent because we're overwhelmed with your mercy, Father, and your grace that repeatedly forgives because we understand, Jesus, when you died on that cross, you took our sin from us. Oh, Father, as we respond now by singing to you, would we respond? with hearts that are overwhelmed with your mercy to a group of sinful people. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.